this morning is from Isaiah chapter 60. It's found in your pew Bibles on page 742. Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you, this all assembly and will come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading um, is from the book of Revelations, and uh, we'll be starting in chapter 21, verses 9 through 11, which can be found on page 1252 in your pew Bible. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then we continue with verses 22 through 27. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring, bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought to it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let me first say that I do not have COVID, but I am on the tail end of a nasty cold, so I will not be shaking your hands afterward. It is me, not you. <laughs> We're coming to the close of one of my favorite seasons of the year. 
It's a time full of holidays, celebrations, family, and friends. It starts in late November with Thanksgiving. This year, my family party had 19 people and eight pies, which was almost perfect. <laughs> After that comes the first week of December and my birthday. I share this birthday with my daughter. I wasn't sure I was going to like that, but when she was small, she thought that having the same birthday meant that we were twins. <laughs> I like being 10. This is a good year for me. After my birthday comes the lessons and carols service at Calvin Church, which has light and music and scripture. It's a glorious service of celebration and adoration. And then, of course, there's Christmas Day. But tucked away in the middle of all of the concerts, the parties, the goodies, the Christmas programs, is my favorite day of all. This year, the day that I'm thinking of was a week ago Thursday, on December 21. This was the day of the winter solstice, the day when the sunrise and the sunset are closest together. Here in Grand Rapids, we're ranked in the top 10 cities nationwide. For cloudiest cities. <laughs> We have sky high rates of seasonal depression, made worse by our dark gray winters. So maybe it seems a little odd to love the day when the sun is furthest away and the daylight hours are the shortest. There's just nine hours of daylight compared to 15 and a half in June. But I love this day because it's the nadir of the season. It's the lowest point. As Jan Richardson writes in her book, The Cure for Sorrow, this is the night when you can trust that any direction you go, you will be heading toward the dawn. I love that sense of hope, of anticipation, of confidence. There's nowhere to go except up. The days are going to start getting longer. No matter which way you think you're heading, it will be toward the light. Our sermon today is about the new city of Jerusalem. It's a city without any created lights because the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Everywhere you look, you are surrounded by light. And the text is from Revelation, but Revelation draws from the earlier books in the Bible. Maybe some of you have at some point made a New Year's resolution to read through the whole Bible. And if you try to read straight through the Bible from beginning to end, this is really tough. Genesis and Exodus go by pretty quickly, but then there's Leviticus and Numbers. We pick up some steam with the historical books and make it to Psalms or Proverbs or maybe even the major prophets, but then you might just ditch the rest of the Old Testament and head straight to Matthew. The New Testament is much shorter, so it's pretty easy to get all the way through and read Revelation. There's a real struggle when reading through the Bible to avoid getting bogged down in the harder content. It can be confusing or seem irrelevant or just boring. But despite how it feels to us, the Bible really tells one story. It's all connected. Revelation is a book of prophecy, but it's not prophecy in a vacuum. To understand Revelation, we need to understand the Old Testament prophecies. The last section of the Old Testament, Isaiah through Malachi, is prophecy. It's about a quarter of the entire Bible. 
And some of these prophecies come back in the book of Revelation. But to understand the Old Testament prophecies, we need to know the history, which goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So today, in thinking about the new city of Jerusalem, we're going to look at three parts of John's vision in Revelation. The temple, the kings and the nations, and the light. And we're going to look at these throughout the Bible, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, to hopefully understand what John's vision is in Revelation. So first of all, let's look at the temple. When we think about the temple in the Bible, we probably envision Solomon's temple. It's called the first temple, but the Jewish idea of a temple goes back much further than that. If you think back to the creation story, to Genesis 1, the very first thing that God says on day one is, let there be light. But this isn't when God creates the sun and the moon. That doesn't happen until day four. So what exactly is this light? Well, Jewish scholars believe that the light that God is naming at the beginning of creation comes from an already existing temple made of God's glory. God and God's glory existed long before earth was created. So scholars envision God's glory as a kind of temple which generated the light on earth before the sun was created. On the second day of creation, when God separated the heavens from the earth, God literally separated the light, which is God's glory, from the darkness, which is the earth. Later in the Old Testament, God chooses the Israelites to be God's people. And before the Israelites settle in the Promised Land, God travels with them in the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Israelites made camp, they kept the Ark inside the tabernacle, a sort of mobile tent temple in the place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was home to the presence of God, the place where God could meet with the people. Even though the tabernacle was only a temporary home for God, it was a place for the presence of God to exist. If you were here the last time I preached, I talked about Leviticus and why that was so important. Eventually, when the Israelites settled into the Promised Land, King Solomon built God a temple. And this temple took seven years to construct. And this links it back to the creation story because the creation of the world took seven days. Solomon's temple was a permanent building, a place where God's presence could dwell and stay. But this temple didn't last forever. Solomon's temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. There were prophets during this time, and what they said about the future changed depending on the status of the temple. While Solomon's temple was standing, Isaiah prophesied that God would create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things would not be remembered. Jeremiah prophesied that in the future, there would be no Ark of the Covenant, and Jerusalem would be the throne of the Lord. After the destruction of the temple, Ezekiel spent eight chapters prophesying about a new temple that would be created. And finally, Haggai prophesied that God would shake the earth and there would be a new temple more full of glory than the old. Shortly after Haggai's time, King Cyrus allowed the exiles to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And this temple, known as the Second Temple, was still standing when the earliest books of the New Testament were written. 
when Jesus began his ministry on earth, he spoke about this temple, but not in the way that people expected. In the Gospel of John, the Jews challenged Jesus' authority and asked for a sign to prove it. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And they were astonished. This temple had taken four years to build. But his disciples later realized that Jesus was speaking about his own body as the temple. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, Jesus tells his disciples that he is the stone that the builders rejected and that he has become the cornerstone. And finally, we get to John's vision in Revelation. And here, the temple is gone. There is no temple, at least no building. God and the Lamb are the temple. God's presence is no longer limited to a physical constructed temple. Since there's nothing impure or unclean in the new Jerusalem, God's presence is no longer bound by the temple. The temple will encompass everything. Jerusalem and the temple are one and the same. In the beginning, there was God's glory, God as a temple in the heavens. And then God separated the heavens from the earth. And then there was creation. And human creatures built a temple for God's presence to dwell in on earth. And the Gospel of John tells us that God, in the person of Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. We caught a glimpse of God's glory while Jesus was on earth. And in John's vision and revelation, at the end of time, God remains forever. The temple, which started off separate from creation, came down to earth, walked on the earth, and will remain on the new earth. There is no temple because God is the temple. And that's not the only thing that will change. Next, we'll look at the kings and the nations. In the beginning, in Genesis, God created Adam, and then God created Eve, and then Adam and Eve had children. Originally, there was only one family, one nation, but this doesn't last for very long. We don't have to go very far into the Bible before we find separation of people. It happens after sin enters the world. It's Genesis 4 when Cain kills Abel. Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, where people around the earth are scattered. And Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham, where God promises that the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And when God refers to the nations, it means people who aren't Israelites, us, the whole rest of the world. And from this point on, the nations are always part of the story of Israel. Later, the kings are too, because all of the nations have kings. After Israel gets a king like the other nations, things go downhill for them. Before long, the nation of Israel is split, and the few good kings are greatly outnumbered by the bad ones. Israel is surrounded by hostile kings and nations, and then Isaiah prophesies that the Redeemer will come not only to those who repent from Israel, but also for the kings and the nations. In Isaiah 60, we heard that nations will come to God's light and kings to the brightness of, the, of God's dawn. This isn't just Israel, this is everyone. And the nations bring not only power and wealth and literal treasures, but themselves as worshipers of the one true God. Nations who submit will recognize that God's presence dwells in Zion and they will be invited to join. 
And this is what we see in John's vision in Revelation. The nations will walk by the light of the city, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory of the nations will come into this city. Since Jerusalem is already made of gold and jewels, that's not what the glory of the nations is. The glory they are bringing is praise to God and to the Lamb. It's not just the Israelites. It's the kings. It's the nations. It's us. We as Gentiles, as well as the Israelites, have full access to God and to the presence of God. There is room in the holy city for all who repent. Because the temple is the city, nothing unclean can enter it. But this won't be an issue. There will no longer be need for rules and regulations because of what God has done for us through Jesus. The gates of the city will never have to be closed. There's no one to keep out. No one can sneak up to the city in darkness because in the New Jerusalem, there is no darkness. There is no night. It is always light. And that's the third thing we're looking at today, the light. There's no night, but there's also no sun and moon. There's no need for created lights anymore because the glory of God is the light of Jerusalem and the Lamb is the lamp. The prophet Ezekiel had a vision of being transported to the land of Israel and set down upon a mountain. There he saw a temple. And in Ezekiel 43, we read that the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. The sound was like the sound of mighty waters, and the earth shone with his glory. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And these are the words of the prophet Isaiah. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light by night, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Some of that glory and light will be transferred to us as well. The prophet Daniel writes that those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We read this in the New Testament also, in Philippians 2 which encourages us to do all things without murmuring or arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. The true fullness doesn't happen until John's vision and revelation, when we will be in the presence of God. The temple city does not need sun or moon. God's glory is incomparable in relation to any of the lights of creation. God's glory is enough to make the city and its inhabitants resplendent. The very presence of God is enough to illuminate everything. This Saturday is January 6th, which is Epiphany. And Epiphany is the conclusion of the 12 days of Christmas, which actually start on December 25. And the celebration of Epiphany is one of the oldest traditions in the church. In the Western church, Catholics and Anglicans, we celebrate the Magi coming to visit Jesus. But in the Eastern church, the Orthodox tradition, Epiphany is the celebration of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' two natures as fully human and fully divine. The word Epiphany comes from a Greek word meaning manifestation. 
An epiphany is an aha moment, a lightning bolt of understanding what something is, a sudden illumination of what was previously hidden. And it makes sense that this is connected with light. We've all had moments where we see a shadow that we just know is a person outside. So we hold our breath and slink over to the light switch and flick it on, only to discover that what we thought was a person was actually a life-size Spider-Man decal our roommates had stuck to the glass sliding door. <laughs> okay, maybe that was just me. But the point is that the light reveals the truth. Things that might be concealed by darkness have nowhere to hide in the light. An epiphany is a celebration of light. On Christmas, we celebrate Jesus coming to earth. And now as we move toward epiphany, we celebrate God revealing the fullness of who Jesus is. Jesus, fully human and fully divine, who came to save the whole world, not just the people originally chosen by God. The Magi followed the star, the light, to Jesus, and Jesus declared that he was the light of the world. And Jesus brings this light into all creation, revealing the truth about who we are. In the New Jerusalem, there's no concealing shadows. Everything is out in the open. Nothing is hidden. And this knowledge of what is to come shapes our actions today. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis explains it like this. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, culture, art, civilization, these are, are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. In this season of December, of winter, of darkness, as we wait for the light and the epiphany, things can feel overwhelming, but we know that any direction, yes, every direction, leads to the dawn, Jesus Christ, the morning star, fully human and fully divine, took the weight of the world's sin onto himself. He secured our place in heaven and wrote our names on the book of life. Because of the redemptive work of Jesus, we can look forward to future glory. We have seen how the prophecies long before the time of Jesus have been fulfilled, and we know that the prophecies since then will be fulfilled. We have confidence that no matter which way the world seems to be heading, it is always darkest before the dawn.
And when the dawn comes, we will live in the glorious light of God, where all things will be made new. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I'll pray with words from poet Elizabeth Rooney. There had been stars, year after desert year, a cold light and a distant, for stars are never near, until the light that lighted all the world consented to be born. The night he came, the stars swung low and sang as morning stars had sung creation's morn. So sing we now, star-crossed, we sing the bright and morning star shining among us, banishing our night. Come, Emmanuel. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and be born in our hearts. Amen. <laughs>